This is the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Former President Donald Trump is now the presumptive Republican nominee in this November's election. On today's podcast, a former Trump administration official joins us to provide insight on what policy toward Latin America might look like in another term. The preferred trading partner for the Americas at this point is unfortunately China. Besides Mexico and the Central American countries that have comprehensive trade agreements, if you head into the southern cone, into the southern hemisphere of, of the Americas, China wins the trade war in every single country. And I think for our longevity as a country and really for the opportunity and the democratic values we represent as the United States of America, we got to do a better job of engaging American businesses to do business in the Americas. I talk to these days is asking the same question. What would another Donald Trump presidency mean in terms of policy toward Latin America? Now that former President Trump is the presumptive Republican nominee and polls show him with a chance of winning in November, now seemed like a good opportunity to try to answer this question. Our guest is Carlos Trujillo, who was the ambassador to the Organization of American States during President Trump's first term. He is also the founder and president of Continental Strategy. As you'll hear in this interview, Carlos continues to speak to former President Trump about Latin America, and he recently attended the inauguration of Argentina's new president, Javier Millet. Several Republicans I know in Washington pointed to Carlos as a voice who can not only look back at Trump's first term, but speak with some clarity about what might, emphasis might, come in a second term as well. The plan today is to cover a wide variety of topics, from the U.S.-Mexico relationship, to trade, to Venezuela, to how the U.S.-China competition will play out in Latin America, and more. These are complex subjects that all of us have opinions on, but I am here today mostly to listen and try to gain insight into what might be ahead in terms of policy if Donald Trump is indeed the president of the United States a year from now. We will, of course, do a companion version of this podcast soon, asking the same question of what might be ahead if President Biden wins re-election. But for now, Carlos... We appreciate you agreeing to join us. Welcome to the AQ Podcast. Thank you for having me, Brian. Carlos, the title of this episode is What Does Trump Mean for Latin America? So let me start by putting this very broad question to you. In your view, what would another Trump presidency mean for the countries of Latin America? Well, I think it would be modeled after the success of his last term, right? The real full economic and financial re-engagement with the region. USMCA, a deal that most people doubt it could ever be done, was signed under the last Trump administration. The political engagement on the axes of evils in the hemisphere that are constantly destroying democracies and really being forward-facing with them, I think, would also be re-engaged. And I think that one of the biggest issues facing the United States on the domestic policy front is immigration, 
and seeing the success the Trump administration had on multiple policies that were put in place that at some point led to negative net migration towards the end of his term. So I think it, the focus would, in probably order, would be immigration, economic, and really confronting some of these totalitarian governments. You refer to these totalitarian governments, um, and I, I think you also called it an axis of, of evil in the region. Which, which countries specifically are you referring to? Well, the linchpin to all of them is Cuba, right? From an intelligence perspective, we recently saw here in the United States, a U.S. ambassador spent 50 years at the State Department was actually a Cuban asset, right? So Cuba is the linchpin from an intelligence and an operational perspective, but also Venezuela and Nicaragua seeing the complete lack of democracy in both of those countries and the destruction of democracies in all their institutions. So, Carlos, you've, you've already answered this somewhat, but let me put a question directly to you. What do you see as the policy successes of President Trump's first term towards the region? And what areas in your mind fell short or left work still to be done? I would say the two biggest policy successes were immigration, the complete control of our southern border during Trump's administration, a border that was broken and porous when he took office and by the end of the term was controlled and organized. I think that was a significant policy success. And subsequent to him leaving office, we've seen how the border has returned to a state that 200,000 people are crossing illegally every single month. Some months it's even higher. The trade agreements we signed with the region that are longstanding and more importantly, bipartisan. Trump was able to push these agreements through the United States Congress and the United States Senate to really address economic opportunity in the region, which long-term will lead to our prosperity, to our security, and to a orderly migration. I think those were two of the biggest successes in the Trump administration. And really taking on China, uh, bigger than the region, but the real approach to China of recognizing China's malign influence on the region and recognizing some of the malign actors in the region and putting the appropriate pressure to delegitimize their leaders and delegitimize them in the international community mainly Daniel Ortega's, a lot of work that I did uh, my time at the OAS, but also with Maduro and his entire entourage of drug dealers and criminals. I think those were some of the biggest successes we had during his administration. It's interesting, Carlos, you mentioned trade, I, I think, and, and trade deals specifically. Of course, I know about USMCA. I'm at a loss right now to think of what the others in the region were during those four years. Do you think in addition to a clarification on that, I mean, do you think that the traditional mechanism of FTAs, of free trade agreement, might be a tool that a second Trump presidency might use towards the region? And I ask this because it's my perception that I've certainly said on this show a lot, neither party in Washington really seems to fundamentally believe in free trade these days. Without getting into, I think, into you know, the political dynamic domestically, but I think it's, it has to be a linchpin for us to grow our hemisphere, our, our influence, and opportunity in the region. There was you know, talks and at least initial conversations with a free trade agreement with Ecuador in its time. But if you look at how we're performing in the region, the preferred trading partner for the Americas at this point is unfortunately China, besides Mexico and the Central American countries that have comprehensive trade agreements. If you head into the southern cone, into the southern hemisphere of, of the Americas, China wins the trade war in every single country. And I think for our 
longevity as a country and really for the opportunity and the democratic values we represent as the United States of America. We got to do a better job of engaging American businesses to do business in the Americas and really reassessing, do we want to continue to be the country that provides aid or do we want to be the country that provides opportunity and real opportunity that governments and countries can rely on us to grow their economies in a healthy and a robust way with a trading partner that's reliable? Carlos, you were at the OAS, which is, you know, such an interesting forum for interacting with representatives from other countries all over the hemisphere, including those that feel differently. I want to ask you about this topic of China. What is your view on the best way to talk to leaders in Latin America about China? And I ask this because in my experience, the shrill warnings about China, the American official standing on a stage and wagging his or her finger, those tactics, in, in my experience, they, they don't work because for most countries around the region, whether they're on the ideological left, center, or right, as you've pointed out, these are major and in some cases the biggest trading partner they have. So how, I mean, I, I, how would you break through that? How, how wouldn't your experience has been the most effective way to talk to people in the region about this competition between the United States and China? No, Brian, I agree with your point because the main criticism we would have as a government when we would warn them or, or criticize them for doing business with China, they would ask us, then why do you guys do it? And I think we have to recognize that we can't go down into the region and say, China's a terrible trading partner and then come back to the United States and realize that there are a significant economic presence in our own government, in our own country, right? So I think we have to be consistent in our approach. But I think the best approach with the Americas is we are your best trading partner. It's not talking about China. It's talking about us and really talking about the affinity that we both have for democracy, for free markets, for fair trade. And that's how we're going to beat the Chinese. And I think from, from our, our perspective on the region, it can't be one of entitlements. What we've historically done is we'll go down there and give USAID, we'll give some money or some opportunity to a country, and we pat ourselves on the back and we come home and we think we're moving the needle. Unfortunately, USAID has a policy in some countries that it can't be branded aid. So no one even knows that this is coming from the United States of America. The Chinese will do anything. It's obviously branded. So there's this affinity for China. But people in the Americas love the United States of America. And that is our biggest advantage. And our biggest advantage is when we come down there, it has to be a pragmatic approach into how are we going to make them more reliable, stronger democracies, and better trading partners for the United States. And it can't be China's bad and we are good. We have to highlight the years of success we've had. We have to highlight the years of opportunity, the years of democracy. And there, I think there's a natural affinity. And I think we have to be realistic with our aid and our other programs. They can't be driven by ideological and social outcomes. They have to be driven by results. And really, when we're either drafting our budgets on aid or drafting our budgets through multilateral agreements, the outcomes have to be really, really driven by what is the economic advantage to the United States and to this partner if this deal goes forward? And it's usually when we lose deals, I saw throughout my time in the hemisphere, so when we're going down there and giving some sort of loan package that has a significant amount of conditions precedent for them to get the loan. And the Chinese show up, you know, not even including the corruption angle, but they show up and say, ours has 
really no conditions preceded. A lot of conditions subsequent will probably end up taking it when you default, but no preceded, and the government has the political win day one. As a politician, it's really difficult to turn down, and I think we have to recognize that in order to beat the Chinese, in order to compete with the Chinese, the whole threat and warning that China is bad and we are good is no longer going to work. We have to show these people why we are the much, much better option and why the opportunity of working with stable, robust democracies and respecting the rule of law will ultimately lead to a more robust trading partner. In specific cases, though, I can think of several countries that have lined up at various points in the last few years under both the Biden administration and the Trump administration to try to get a trade deal done. I think of Ecuador, Uruguay. I think of Brazil during the Bolsonaro years was, was very eager. And, you know, in the Brazilian case, these were two leaders who had a, a strong personal affinity, Bolsonaro and, and Trump. And yet, you know, with, with some exceptions, they were able to do these so-called TEC deals, but nothing of substance really moved forward. So I, I, the, the, the willingness and sort of the talk about the need to get more done, it, it resonates, but I'm not sure there's, there's much of a record there for either party on this front these last couple of years. I would agree. And I think part of it, you know, the record has to also be driven by the Congress. What you've seen for our foreign policy, especially with the Americas that I'm pretty familiar, it's usually done through executive order. And those executive orders from administration to administration constantly change. So whether Trump brings out the America Cereces Act that was supposed to engage the hemisphere and it was all built out and you had all these MOUs, the administration leaves power, Biden administration comes in and that's no longer their priority. I'm sure they have their own priorities that they're implementing that we, God willing, Trump wins the, now in, in, uh, wins now in November, we come back into power and then we just shift all those priorities. The only way to stop that is to have a comprehensive plan of growing and fostering our competitive advantage or our economic advantage in the hemisphere. And that has to be done through congressional approval. The executive ping pong that we've kind of done is not going to be sufficient going forward. The Chinese approach on all these things is, is the 50-year outlook. When I was down in Colombia, I meet the Chinese ambassador. She speaks perfect Spanish as though she was raised in Colombia. That's not by coincidence. She was trained and organized and recruited and placed at that job, and everything in her professional career leads towards that outcome. State Department or economic department, as good as they are, they're on two to three-year tours. So as that person transitions out, there's a vacuum. And if we don't get a political ambassador or career ambassador, it's even a further vacuum. And that starts leading to our lack of competitiveness in a lot of these countries. Yeah, that is, that is an issue that I have certainly noticed over the years. Um, Carlos, I want to ask you, where do you think the Biden administration has failed or underperformed when it comes to its policy toward Latin America? I think in its consistency. Uh, I think at the end of the day, our policy for Latin America is not promoting governments of left or promoting governments of right. It's really promoting governments who have an affinity and want to work and, and want to be strong allies of the United States. From an economic perspective, from a security perspective, and, and as, just as importantly, from a democratic perspective. So I think it's been much more ideologically driven when you have the vice president of the United States going down to Honduras and celebrating Xiomara Castro, as we've seen the outcome of that decision and the destruction she's been, and, and obviously her anti-American sentiment. I'm not sure what the policy decision was to go down there. 
when you see some of these countries who love the United States and really want, the Dominican Republic's a perfect example, want a stronger, more robust relationship with the United States from a nonpartisan perspective, it seems like the attention is never there. And I think from the security of the United States, when we're giving up Salia's nephews for basically nothing, you know, a couple of Sitco executives, when we're giving up Alex Saab that took years and years in the plannings and, and really the international cooperation of multiple governments in order to capture him in Cape Verde, and then we just turn him over, I think those are real shortcomings that hurt our credibility long term. It'll be really, really hard for us to go back to any asset or, or any ally and really ask them to detain a person or to cooperate with us in capturing a person who's a known trafficker of narcotics, a known money launderer who keeps the regime alive. And at the same time, for them to know that in 24, 36 months, your government's just going to give them up. So I think those decisions ultimately really, really hurt our credibility in the region and hurt America's security long term. Looking at the deal they cut with Maduro, Maria Corina Machado, they preemptively release all the pressure. What does Maduro do? He does what Maduro is always going to do. He immediately declares that the elections are legitimate. They're trying to kill him. Maria Corina should be investigated for all sorts of fraud and abuses. And the entire process breaks down. So you see some of these decisions that are being made. And I think they're they're very, very naive of not understanding who they're dealing with, but I think they're very, very short-sighted of not looking at the long term and really just looking at the next six or 12 months. I want to come back to Venezuela, but first let's talk about another easy topic, immigration. <laughs> the Biden administration has tried to focus attention on, quote-unquote, root causes driving migration nor- northward, things like crime and poverty. I think it's fair to say the first Trump administration was perceived at least, is focusing more on enforcement, the wall. And you said earlier that the border was organized. Prior to COVID, illegal crossings across the U.S. border were, were quite high, not as high as they are right now, certainly. My question for you is, you know, would a second Trump term focus more on conditions on the ground in places like Mexico, Venezuela, Ecuador and Guatemala that are currently sending the most migrants north? And what else could we expect in terms of policy? Well, I think the first thing is rather than, you know, the root causes are important, right? And you have to address them. That's a long-term plan. You have to address the immediate crisis that we're facing at the southern border, the humanitarian crisis, the empowering of coyotes, the elimination of human trafficking, of the trafficking of women and children who are being raped and sold into slavery as they enter this country. I think that's That's a moral and national security impairment that we have to address. And some of the policies that Trump put forward that unfortunately were ended were remain in Mexico and the third country safe agreements. Those were very powerful tools from an immigration perspective in order to put pressure on some of our partners to cooperate and more importantly, to stop the migration flows before they get to our country, to stop those migration flows at the bottlenecks in Chiapas between Guatemala and and Mexico, to stop the migration flows as you're crossing through Panama. So enforcement, I think, is is first and foremost. But if you spend any time speaking to some of the recent migrants that come to the United States, it's not the root causes that are coming, right? When when Haitians are coming who've been in Chile for 20 years or 15 years or coming to the United States, it's not the root cause in Chile that they're showing up. It's the invitation and the opportunity. If there's no enforcement, and some cities actually encourage migration through all sorts of sanctuary agreements and housing agreements and food agreements and shelter agreements, 
second you encourage the behavior, you can't be surprised that people actually accept the invitation. And I think we have to start with that. We have to recognize that if we encourage people to enter this country illegally, surprisingly, they will. So enforcement, I think, would be obviously President Trump has said it in, in multiple occasions, and he's been saying it since 2016. It's really we have to get the southern border under control. And the only way to do that is doesn't start in Texas or, or in Arizona, right, or in California or, or New Mexico. It's really pushing down and, and working with the Mexicans and working with the Guatemalans and working with the Panamanians on these chokeholds of migration that come up. The other thing that's pretty astonishing is Nicaragua, besides being totalitarian, besides having all Catholic priests in prison, opposition expelled, everything that they've done to destroy every last democratic institution is allowing non-visa flights into the country from multiple countries, including Cuba and others, in order to move migrants to our southern border. That's an issue that could quickly be addressed, and I'm sure will be addressed in a Trump second administration and across the region the pressure of saying, our border is not open, you need to cooperate. And if you're not a reliable partner on immigration, it's going to be very difficult for us to have a robust relationship with you on other issues. Carlos, just to pause on this for a second, these flights that are coming in from third countries into Nicaragua, from which you have people from Cuba and Haiti and elsewhere then making their way north, that's an openly hostile relationship between the United States and Nicaragua even today. I mean, is there any tool left in the toolbox to convince a country like Nicaragua not to receive those flights anymore? They still participate and have an advantageous free trade agreement with the United States. That's one tool, right? Why are they part of our free trade agreements? If we know they're no longer a democracy, they destroy human rights, and they're an adverse actor to our national security. And secondly, there's significant assets that are held in the United States by some of their highest ranking members. So we do have opportunities, right? And we do have different tools left that we could put even additional pressure on the Ortegas. I want to talk about Mexico. Man, that was a complicated relationship during the Trump years. President Trump threatened on numerous occasions to end NAFTA, the predecessor to USMCA, and to close the border unless Mexico cooperated on immigration. But He also seemed to forge a productive relationship with AMLO, who just this week, as we record this, referred to Donald Trump as his friend. And the two leaders did eventually negotiate a new pact, USMCA, as I noted. What should we expect from Mexico-U.S. ties, keeping in mind that it will be a new Mexican president that will be in charge um, when the next U.S. president is inaugurated? Obviously, it'll depend who the new president is. But I think historically, if you see President Trump and, and AMLO's relationship, it was one of cooperation. AMLO is trying to advance the best interests of his country in the way he sees fit. President Trump is trying to do the same. So at no point, even though they have different ideological outlooks on life, they're able to come together and they're able to negotiate. And I think both countries were better off because of it, which is surprising because I'm willing to bet that his relationship with President Trump is much stronger than his relationship is right now with President Biden. And I think that's something that the media is obviously not going to report on. But if you look at that relationship, it was one of mutual respect and it was one of cooperation. And we're hopeful for Mexico, whoever comes into power, it'll be the same. They want to advance their Mexican interests. We want to advance our U.S. interests. And there's free trade agreements for both of us to advance both of our interests. But there has to be this mutual respect of rule of law, 
of some of American businesses, obviously, as you've seen, have not been treated well down in Mexico in the last few years. Southern border is obviously a significant issue of contention. And those are conversations and difficult conversations that have to take place. But I think the important thing is that they actually take place, that we don't just gloss over this as though it's not an issue, thinking we're going to have a better relationship, when in reality, we've seen the relationship right now between the Mexicans and the United States, and between the governments at least, it isn't on the highest note. I want to linger on the figure of President López Obrador for just a moment, because even though it's true that he would no longer be president of Mexico by the time we get to 2025, January 2025, the current frontrunner in that race by a healthy margin is his ally, Claudia Sheinbaum. And almost everyone expects that López Obrador would continue to be very influential in that administration. I I admit, I, I have struggled over the years to understand exactly why Trump and López Obrador seem to get along so well, remembering that during his campaign, López Obrador wrote a book called Oye Trump, Hey Trump, that was this long, not exactly a rant, but a book standing up for Mexican sovereignty and and certainly not friendly. What insight, if any, can you give us as to why those two at least, I'm not sure it was friendship, but at least it seemed to have been a degree of respect and understanding what the other was looking for. Well, I, I think it's that. It's, it's mutual respect. It's not an imposition, right? It's not either party trying to impose their will. But I think at the same time, it's both parties advocating for their position. But it was also really significant engagement. Multiple groups from both countries were back and forth, all these agreements. There was a lot of forward-facing, a lot of interaction at the highest levels. There was direct access to the White House. And I think that relationship, that's why it was fostered, and that why there, that's why there was this respect. But here's the thing, and I, I personal relationships in politics at that level especially, they matter so much. And, that's, uh, and they, they sometimes turn into policy, which is why we discuss them. But when we get into the policy level here, there are some real challenges in the Mexico-U.S. relationship right now, as you've alluded to. We have fentanyl coming in to the United States from Mexico, driving all-time record overdoses here in the United States. You have said that President Trump would likely try to uh, reinstate the re- remain in Mexico policy. It's going to get contentious either way, is it not? I mean, how how do you think this... Trump administration would push on these very real issues of trade, immigration, and drug flows? Just by addressing them. I I think the the worst thing that we have is the status quo of we know these are significant challenges and we make no effort to address them. So we know we have these problems with immigration, with drug flow, with all these other issues across the bilateral relationship. And no one's making an effort to say this is an issue and we need to address it. And like any problem you have, at some point it boils over, right? Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Carlos. I mean, I, uh, that, that's not quite fair, is it? I mean, I, I, President Biden speaks about fentanyl all the time. You've had delegations of U.S. officials, including Secretary of State Blinken, traveling to Mexico City, including recently. I mean, I, they've tried. It just nobody has been able to stop this problem. Well, I don't think there's an there's a difference between a conversation at a high level saying fentanyl is bad. I think every single person would agree. There's a difference between saying we need to curb illegal migration. Most people, most rational people, would agree. Then it's what are you actually doing to do that, right? And that's where where you see the disconnect. What have they actually done? 
What have they actually done to curb illegal migration? Why did they remove the Remain in Mexico policy? Why did they remove the third country safe agreements? What are they doing to stop the coyotes who are trafficking children and women across the border? You're judged by your actions, not so much by your discourse. And I think, you know, they've said it, right? They've said it publicly. They've said it on multiple occasions. But at no point is there real pressure to stop it. Again, though, Carlos, to be fair, the current effort to allocate more resources to border protection in the United States is on hold because President Trump told Republican leaders in Congress not to do a deal during an election year, correct? I don't think that's accurate. It's also the third year of the administration, right? So this issue is, this problem has existed for the last 36 plus months. And now it's, you know, right before the election year, they're going to try to quote unquote, solve the problem. We should have a migration deal. We should have had it yesterday. We should have one tomorrow. We should have one today. I think everyone would agree with that. But it has to be a deal that makes sense. And it really has to be a deal that's not predicated on you have to fund Ukraine. You have to fund 60 other objectives. And at that point, after you do all of that, we're going to focus on the southern border. The southern border isn't a Republican issue. It isn't a Democratic issue. It's our national security. And I think Americans, the majority of Americans, feel that way. Final question on Mexico, Carlos. This idea of conducting unilateral military action within Mexico to stop fentanyl trafficking has become pretty mainstream within the Republican Party. Do you have any idea what President Trump and his future national security team might think of this idea? I think the president's made it clear, President Trump has made it clear, fentanyl is destroying American cities and destroying American families. And we have to do everything in our power to stop it. And unilateral action sounds great and and obviously helps solve some of the problem. But bilateral long-term cooperation is the ultimate solution. We'll be back with more on the relationship with Venezuela, Brazil, and several other countries around the region. The America Society Art Gallery is currently showing the second part of El Dorado, Myths of Gold, a group exhibition exploring the legend of El Dorado as a foundational myth of the Americas. Art at America Society is the longest standing space in the U.S. dedicated to exhibiting and promoting art from Latin America and the Caribbean. El Dorado, Myths of Gold will be on view in New York until May 18, 2024. I said we'd come back to Venezuela. Let's come back to Venezuela. The Trump administration tried a strategy of, of maximum pressure, passing sanctions, supporting Juan Guaido as the legitimate interim president of Venezuela. Many other governments in Latin America and in Europe at the time also recognized Guaido. That attempt did not work out. The Biden administration has tried negotiations, as you referenced earlier. Neither policy has had the intended result. Maduro is still in charge. He's still a dictator of Venezuela. Where do we go from here? You know, it, it's, not a, it's not an easy solution, right? And I think the, the intended result for both parties, I think most Democrats would feel the same way, is removing Maduro from power and having Venezuela to return to a democratic society. And the only way to have that is to have the conditions for a democratic election and allowing all candidates, right, plurality of candidates to participate in that democratic process. So I think that that has to be part of the focus, right? I don't think sanctions in and of itself will drive the unique outcome. I think they're part of a solution, just like I think negotiations have to be part of a solution. It can't be just one or the other. But we have to continue to have the credibility of defending the rule of law and defending democracy. And when you see presidential pardons for a gentleman like Alex Saab, when you see presidential pardons for, for Celia's nephews, you start losing a lot of credibility as a country 
when you're willing to trade these people who are really, really bad actors, who are really bad individuals who've caused significant harm to Americans, and we're willing to just give them up. So I think part of that balanced approach is just like with Mexico with all of others is, is having that respect. And that respect is really through through strength. It's never through weakness. What, if anything, have you heard from President Trump or from people in his circle regarding Venezuela? It's really dear to his heart. I was with President Trump on his birthday last year and brought him a letter that was written by a lot of the Venezuelan exiles. And it's a cause and it's people that he really has an affinity and a love for. It's no secret that President Trump during his first term had positive relationships with several Latin American leaders, including Ivan Duque of Colombia, Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil, whom I previously mentioned, and Mauricio Macri in Argentina. But the political map looks pretty different now. The leaders that I mentioned were all leaders on the center right or right. The map today is, to a large extent, dominated by leaders like Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva in Brazil, Gabriel Boric in Chile, and Gustavo Petro in Colombia. Do you think that would be a challenge? I don't, I don't think it will be. Just like we had a great relationship with AMLO, who was a leader on the left, I think if you're clear in your objectives, you're clear in your communication, and you're engaged, fully engaged with these countries, they want to advance their interests just like we do. And I think there's always room for compromise, there's always room for negotiation, and there's always room to try to achieve a mutually beneficial outcome. And I think that that's going to be the objective. It's not, our objective is to advance American interests and advance the United States. And that's what we have to see. It's not just with people we like, but it's also people that we prefer not to spend time with. Because at the end of the day, there's a lot of American businesses in Brazil. There are a lot of American businesses in Colombia. There are a lot of American citizens who spend time down there. And they're also pivotal to our national security. And that's the approach we'll take when dealing with them is as long as they're willing to advance or there's a mutual respect for rule of law, there's a mutual respect for the countries, they're willing to advance our security and our safety, and they respect our businesses and our business men and women who are doing work down there, I think we'll have a very robust and fruitful relationship. In practice, though, a leader like Gustavo Petro in Colombia has advocated a different approach to drug interdiction, for example, saying that the war on drugs has failed. Uh, and you say that, you know, the fact that he's a leftist is not a problem in and of itself. But if there's a misalignment on a topic like that at a time when cocaine production in Latin America has doubled over the last decade, is that potentially a problem? Uh, absolutely, it's a problem. But that, that misalignment's happening now between a leftist Colombian government and a center-left American government, right? And I think with anyone like Petro or anyone else, there are things that he might counter narcotics. He has a different opinion, I would say, than even this administration, but definitely from President Trump. But there are a lot of things that are very important to President Petro that the U.S. government controls. And I think it's just having those frank conversations of, we understand your position on this, but there are a lot of other things that are very, very important to you and your government that we have a lot of oversight over. It would be fair to note that the Colombian government under Petro has continued with drug interdiction efforts. Let me move on to another leader who does actually seem to have some ideological affinity with former President Trump. That's Javier Millet of Argentina. What do you make of him? And more importantly, I suppose, how do you see Argentina's trajectory right now? Um, I think he's a very dynamic, exceptional leader and very sincere. 
uh, had the opportunity to attend his swearing in down in Buenos Aires in December. I think he brings a lot of hope to a country and really to an economy that's beyond broken. So I, I, I see nothing but positive things coming from Argentina. Their willingness and their engagement with the United States, their unequivocal commitment to democratic values, their peaceful transition of power. There's so many things that and so much positive that's coming out of Argentina. And I think Malay is the, the right leader for the right time. I wrote a column last week, Carlos, about Ecuador and its 36-year-old president, Daniel Noboa. Ecuador, I know you saw the scenes in January when the masked gunman took over a TV station, took dozens of policemen and prison guards hostage. And this was really uh, an important front, but certainly not the only country dealing with the challenge of organized crime right now. We've seen other countries that were previously relatively peaceful, such as Chile, such as Uruguay, with big increases in homicide rates and violence over the last couple of years. How, if at all, can and should a U.S. government try to support these countries? I've always found that the best use, and I, I saw it in Central America, is, is capacity building, um, sharing best practices, and lending American assets to help build that capacity. What would you say to people who look at these situations and kind of throw up their hands and say, God, you know, this war on drugs that all of our countries have been fighting for the last 50 years, it's just not working. I mean, it's like a -a whack-a-mole thing. Maybe it'll temporarily get better somewhere, but then flare up in other places. I mean, how, what's your response to that complaint? I think you always have to look at, you know, the alternative, right? And the alternative is doing nothing or legalization. And we've seen even in certain American cities that have gone down that road, it's not a road to prosperity. So it's a difficult road. Taking on narcotics is obviously never easy. Um, But the bigger they get, they almost start overtaking their own governments. And we've seen that in the political arena and in a lot of countries in which transnational criminal organizations are more powerful than anyone else in the entire country which leads to an absolute destruction of democracy and opportunity, which is never an outcome I think anyone's going to accept. So it's, it's not an easy path. And obviously there is fatigue and there is exhaustion, but the alternative is in, a better, is in a better avenue. Carlos, I wrote an essay for America's Quarterly towards the end of 2023 that was called A Relatively Bullish Case for Latin America. And I listed five reasons why it felt like 2023 and now 2024, things were looking up. One of the big reasons was nearshoring. That's been a huge boost to Mexico's economy. Big reason why Mexico's economy grew more than 3% in 2023. Uh, There's been a lot of talk about other countries in the region potentially participating in this. Some of it's happening already. Countries in Central America, maybe, maybe even as far south as Brazil. This would bring obvious benefits to the U.S. economy, and also potentially address this issue of the competition with China, which you referenced earlier. That said, one of the central proposals of President Trump's campaign this year is a new 10% tariff on all countries. How do we square this desire that you've expressed to bring countries of the hemisphere closer and away from China with this policy that would make exports more expensive? 
Well, it's all, it's all exports across the world. So it's not unique to the region, right? So it's really finding the economic and competitive advantage that the region has, which is skilled workforce, young labor force, proximity to the United States, reliable natural resources, low cost of production, and encouraging American businesses that it's a much better it's a much better deal to do business in this hemisphere than it is to do it in China or in Asia. Free trade agreements and other opportunities exist, but it's really the massive economic advantage that we have that we have in the hemisphere. And, and really the tariffs, the floor, it's not the ceiling. As we saw during the Trump administration, a lot of Chinese products, the tariffs were much higher than 10%, and they, they were even held and continued under the Biden administration. So in a supply and demand-based economy, right? If, if that's one constant across the board, I don't think it changes anyone's decision. Final question for you here, Carlos. There's this classic lament that you hear in Washington. I, I heard it from you in the course of our conversation today, but also you hear it in capitals across the region that Washington doesn't pay enough attention to Latin America. And, you know, I heard that during the Biden administration. I heard it during the first Trump administration. I'm sure you did too. How, do, how would a second Trump administration get around that and try to address that this idea this this core truth that there's always a crisis happening somewhere that's more important than what's happening in latin america and that sustained attention is just never there i think it's a fair criticism of both administrations right of both parties and and the last two administrations and and multiple administrations before them but it's that's that's that sustained contact right and that sustained engagement which we've always struggled with and really a more long-term and objective vision for the hemisphere not our, our short-term needs migration is obviously a very short-term need it ever it's been a long-term need now but it's something that is pressing counter narcotics is something that's pressing but it shouldn't limit our ability to look further long-term of opportunities that exist within the region and within the countries of the region we have great embassies we have great embassy staff we have great ambassadors but at the end of the day, there's a big difference between your president being able to come to Washington, D.C. and have a meeting at the Oval Office or the president of the United States or vice president being able to go to country. And I think we really, really have to focus on that high-level engagement, that constant engagement, and at the same time, build out a more robust long-term strategy. Carlos, again, we appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on the AQ Podcast. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Media.